I'm Jane Akery with Mesh News Desk. Madrice Kynard is a former FDA IT project manager who left the agency to focus on patient safety. Understanding that numbers tell the story, she developed a database to show the true number of adverse events, as they're called, or complications with medical devices. Her business, Device Events, makes this information useful to consumers, hospitals, doctors, attorneys, and journalists. Without this easily accessible database, we are basically in the dark about how well devices are working in the real world or not. Madrice Kynard, the system architect, founder of Device Events, welcome. Thank you for having me. We did a story about five years ago now, and you told me that there were 5.6 million pieces of data collected by the FDA concerning complications. At the same time, we all know the agency is having trouble identifying any warning signs for the troublesome medical devices. Uh, why is that? Well, there are a couple reasons for that. Um, the FDA is um, seeing a, a huge increase in the number of devices on the market, um, partly because of how they're structured um, and certainly because of COVID as well. But the the other reason for that is there are, uh, because there are a lot more devices on the market now, they haven't really matched that with post-market funding from Congress. And so they don't have enough people to read these reports that are coming in. And, you know, when we spoke five years ago, there were about 65,000 reports per month, and that has doubled. And so, you know, the FDA now has 11.1 million adverse event reports for all the various devices uh, and not enough analysts to read them and act on them. Well, we know the FDA is underfunded, and it seems to me that's intentional because then industry can go ahead and do what it wants unchecked. I mean, is that a fair assessment? It is to some extent. What what they've done is they've set up this um, structure where the manufacturers pay for their app when their applications go to the FDA. So if they have a new device that they want cleared or approved, they send a check to the FDA, and then that check pays for the scientists to review the uh, application. Um, but that not you don't have part of that check also going to the analyst who needs to read all the reports when something goes wrong with the device. So that's a big piece of it. It is, it is how they are funded. And I'm not necessarily certain that having the companies pay for the surveillance of their devices is even the, the right way to go. It really is that we need more congressional funding so that it's not tied to that manufacturer. I mean, when the device makers already pay the FDA to review the application, you've lost some of that integrity, I think. Yeah, that's really interesting. And um, this came to mind recently. We know that uh, Australia has a device registry of sorts, and they found the metal-on-metal hip replacements far before the U.S. found out there were complications with them. I, I believe that's right. And because they have a registration, like a post-market registration, and we do not in the U.S. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. We we don't have uh, any centralized repository for collecting data on devices um, other than, you know, the MOD system, which is the adverse event reporting system, and that, that relies um, primarily upon manufacturers to report themselves, which is a flawed, <laughs> a flawed system. 
I see. So they pay for the review and then they report themselves. Hmm, who's in charge here exactly? Yeah, it doesn't really make any sense, does it? I mean, as you just said, it absolutely makes no sense. And something else that's interesting is that when physicians have a problem with the device and they report it, they report it to the manufacturer, not directly to the FDA. Right. Something I've been trying to change um, on Capitol Hill, um, but it's been a few years since we've really made any traction with that, where physicians uh, would be mandated to report directly to the FDA. That way you don't have the manufacturer creating the report on behalf of that physician. You know that the, the information came firsthand. And we've seen with um, transvaginal mesh, I'm, I'm most familiar with, that sometimes the manufacturer would look at the report and go, no, that's not a serious report, you know, and throw it out and then go to the next one. And then they would judge, people in that position within the industry would judge whether or not it was a viable report and worthy of attention. Well, again, you know, Fox watching the, the hen house, that makes no sense either. That's a problematic way to manage anything. And, and even when you have uh, an inspection where the FDA inspector goes to the site and identifies reports that should have been submitted to the FDA, they don't take those reports back to the FDA. They simply cite the manufacturer for not reporting and say, oh, you should sub submit these. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's what happened with the Sure device was there were 32,000 reports that never made it to the FDA at all. Um, and with mesh, you know, that's, um, they were submitting uh, in a different format for many, many years. And when, you know, it was discovered publicly that there were um, so many reports that hadn't been viewed publicly, they actually, the FDA decided to release those summary reports. They were spreadsheets. And for some reason, they, um, they did not include the mesh reports in that release. Um, the FDA said that due to lit, um, current litigation that they wouldn't release those reports, um, which is the complete opposite of what you would think the FDA would do. You would think they would see those reports as being more important than ever because there's current litigation going on um, with respect to the mesh. Now, you obviously work there and you must have been very frustrated seeing all of these loopholes and all of these problems. So. Just kind of walk us through, how did you decide to make the reporting system or, or the access to this information different? Well, if you're trying to use the, the publicly available data, you can only view 500 reports at a time. And I knew that there, were, there was a huge number of reports at the FDA and, and that there needed to be a better way for the FDA even to view those. And so I was in the process of building them a new system and they chose a uh, technology software that couldn't do what it needed to do. Um, and unfortunately, I wasn't involved in that, in that discussion. And so rather than staying and trying to build out a system that wasn't going to work any better than what they already had, I decided to um, leave and, and start my own system that would pull in not only the adverse events and make them usable, but include recalls and uh, eventually those summary reports or spreadsheets. And so I can look to see if something is potentially, you know, if there's a spike in adverse events, I can see that and then see, well, has there been a recall? You know, sometimes there's a recall and then you see more adverse events because 
the physicians may not have realized, oh, you know, my patient did complain about that. I didn't realize it was related to this device. And so after a recall, you'll see a huge number of adverse events, especially from physicians come in that go back and look at their, their files and, and realize maybe they should have listened a little bit more than they did. But sometimes you have the opposite where you have, you know, a number of adverse events and then the recall happens because that, that number essentially kind of cued in the FDA, something's wrong. And, and uh, you know, but, but to know that recalls, just so you know, they don't come from the FDA. Uh, really, they're voluntary. And so the FDA is just strongly advising, and I did little air quotes that you couldn't see, but they're strongly advising the manufacturer to do a recall. And so that's what we see, you know, 99% of the time is really, it's the recall is still led by the manufacturer. Explain something to me, and this is a little bit off topic, but, you know, we see dog food that gets recalled on a pretty regular basis, yet we have medical devices that thousands of women and men are complaining to their doctors and to the manufacturers, hey, this has injured me, this has killed my family member, and yet the recalls are not initiated, either by the FDA or by the manufacturer. How how does that exist? Well, so I believe it was in the 80s that the Division for Devices, CDRH, they they did a recall on a device and got sued by the company. And after that, they became very wary of being sued again. And so where you see food recalls and drug recalls and, you know, all of this happens and they're led by the FDA, but you don't see that with devices. And it's an interesting dynamic that the FDA in this one division would fear device companies, because they don't, to my knowledge, from what I've seen in the drug space. And uh, I'm not sure how to ever make that change. But when those summary reports for hundreds of thousands of devices were going to be made public, the manufacturer went and said, if you release those, we'll sue you. And the FDA didn't release them. So it's still going on. Um, and it's been going on for years that, that they have this hold over the FDA that is hard to understand. Tell us what's trending now, if you would, in just in your research, uh, in your company now, Device Events, what, what are you seeing? I, I, I guess one of the recent stories I saw was in uh, a magazine about hernia mesh. And you were quoted and you said there has been a drastic spike in hernia mesh cases since 2017. And then you give some of the data there. Um, What's going on with hernia mesh? The FDA had a mesh meeting a few years ago. It was a public meeting. And in that meeting, they didn't address hernia mesh because it was an obstetrics and gynecology panel. So they only discussed mesh as it was used um, for pelvic organ prolapse. And, um, so you have this issue where the FDA addressed only half of the problem. They did change the, uh, rating, the risk classification for those types of mesh, the transvaginal mesh to class three, uh, which made it higher risk. And then they were going to require that the manufacturers, um, do testing and, and trials. And so the manufacturers that made that essentially, for the most part, dropped out and they don't do that anymore. But there was no mention of hernia mesh because that's handled by a different division at the FDA. And what we've seen 
um, really is that, you know, mesh is mesh. It may be shaped differently, but it's still the same material for the most part um, that's being used in a different part of the body. And so as we saw those transvaginal mesh cases decrease because people stopped using it, what we saw um, because there had been no um, action on the side with hernia mesh was that I think there was this um, feeling that it was safer for some reason, or it was okay to use for, for hernias, just not you know the way it was being placed before. But that's not the case. We're seeing in 2019, we had close to 15,000 adverse events reported for hernia mesh. And um, physicians have moved away from doing any type of hernia surgery without mesh. It's, it's the standard of care right now. And uh, it, you know, when, when we start to see we have 51,000 adverse event reports, you know, the FDA needs to do another public meeting, needs to look into whether, you know, the way that the physicians are being trained to use mesh is going to leave us in a place where we have no safer alternatives that are non-mesh. How does this information get out there unless it's through you or maybe the lawyers who are, are using your service? Uh, how are consumers hearing about this? I would say they're mostly hearing about it because I will work with journalists to get the information out to the public. Um, the FDA hasn't done any type of dear doctor letter that I know of to inform physicians of what they're seeing. And because the data is so hard to view in the FDA site, you know, they say, oh, it's public, but you don't know how to look it up. You don't know what the mesh is called. A lot of times when these reports come in, it won't even say the name of the mesh because they're not tracked well enough. Or if they've tracked it, they, they'll say unknown mesh product in the report. And the FDA has put in some tools to try to curb that by using device identifiers similar to like a, a UPC code and wanting to require that in electronic health records and in claims forms so that it, you at least have some point at which that what type of mesh you got is recorded so that if you have a problem, you know what you're reporting to the FDA. Whereas previously it was considered a and in fact, this comes from the industry. I was on a call with them in the FDA and they said, well, we don't want to have to put this in medical records. This is a commodity item. And so even though it's implanted in the patient, they saw it as the same as using a Band-Aid or a suture and not necessarily be making it something that is reportable to the FDA. Incredible that it permanently implanted medical devices are considered like a Band-Aid. I'm, I'm sorry, that's nonsensical. Um, looking at some of that data concerning hernia mesh, I see the complications often, um, well, you tell me, but sepsis is a very common complication when the colon is perforated by the hernia mesh. Is that what you're seeing? I am. Yes. Um, and so one of the things you, when you search the reports in the FDA system, even when you, you do find them and you would find many, there are 50,000 reports for hernia mesh. Um, but you're going to have to know how to look for them. But even when they appear, you have to open each report and read them. And what I've done is I've made, I've pulled all of these outcomes. Um, you know, you use keywords when people describe what they're going through. You know, they're saying, you know, I had adhesions. I'm on disability. I've got inflammation. I'm in pain all the time. 
And so those things have to be taken into account when you're looking at, well, is the patient just dealing with one thing or is this something that's so systemic and difficult for the body to handle that you, you're now seeing five to 10 outcomes for these patients, scarring, erosion, abscess. I mean, I see here, let's see, you've got discomfort, scar tissue, but if we're looking at things like disability, there are 4,800 reports to the FDA that were coded by the manufacturer. They said, this patient is disabled. And we know that the majority of adverse event reports don't make it to the FDA. I think the the average uh, that the Office of Inspector General had said is 14%. So Mm. when we see um, that kind of figure, you know, and that's not for the other types of mesh, this is just hernia mesh. When we see, you know, 4,800 cases where the patient is now on disability, then you have to think that that, that's probably at least five or six times higher. Um, And that's based on the Health and Human Services study. At what point does it become alarming to the FDA internally that we have a problem here? What does it take? I mean, that to me sounds pretty alarming. Well, I will say that the FDA scientists that weren't on the panel but presented to the panel at the um, the transvaginal mesh meeting said that that mesh should be only used for um, extreme circumstances. It should not be the first thing that's done. So the FDA scientists at the panel said that the mesh is the, is the last resort and they should be using native tissue repair. And native tissue repair is when they take your own tissues. And so then you don't have the issue with um, your body rejecting the device, which if you think about it, you know, patients who get a new heart or a new lung are put on serious medications so that they don't reject that. But we don't have anything similar for devices and the bodies are rejecting them. We're seeing erosion. We see migration and, and shrinkage of the device. So there are, the FDA does have the data, but they, uh, until there's a public meeting, it seems they don't take action. And, and so I think we need to have somewhat of an outcry. You know, there needs to be a public meeting about this. You know, last year, everything was focused on COVID. And I think there was a strong understanding that's what needed to happen. But things have changed and it's time to say, okay, these just spiked in the last two years and it's time to address these now just as we address the transvaginal mesh in 2013 and 14. Is uh, Is there a spike, do you think, because more mesh is being used more frequently? I do. My understanding is that physicians are now being trained only to use mesh. And so even if you wanted to get... um, the surgery without mesh, it's very difficult to find a physician who will do it. And so yeah. we are going to see an uptick if that's the standard of care. Uh, and these, these um, devices aren't any safer than they were five to 10 years ago. I thought it was amusing that when Senator Rand Paul wanted to have his hernia repaired, he went to the Shouldice Clinic in Toronto. He didn't have a mesh repair. You know, what does he know that the public doesn't no, um, I mean, there's Shouldice, Desarda. There are a number of surgical techniques that don't use mesh, although in some cases doctors tell me you absolutely have to use it if somebody's obese, if they've had a recurrence or multiple recurrences, there may be absolutely nothing else they can do. 
transvaginal mesh. Let's talk about that. Um, if you have looked into this lately, we know the POP, pelvic organ prolapse, usually the larger meshes were taken off the market a couple of years ago um, when they were shown to not be safe and effective. But I think the public doesn't really understand that the mesh used for incontinence is still used every day. Um, they call it a ribbon or a minimally invasive polypropylene implant. It, it's still mesh, um, and it's very commonly used. And just like hernia, many doctors aren't trained on, on doing a native tissue repair. So are you seeing, I mean, what's the data telling you on, on transvaginal mesh? So we do see those as well. A lot of times it, it looks like more than one mesh is being used in more than one place when it's used. Um, mm. so they would get, you know, the same treatment for incontinence that they would get for, um, you know, pelvic organ prolapse, whether it's just being placed differently. Um, the, the reports, um, you know, as we look at mesh over the years, what we really see was that, you know, you had that that big spike in 2013 um, when transvaginal mesh was um, really that was spotted to be the problem. We had 60,000 adverse event reports in one year um, just for that, for, for mesh. And then it really did seem like the problem went away. You know, the next year there were um, less than 5,000 reports. Uh, it's just a, a very small number compared to what they had seen. Um, so I believe that the FDA may have felt that the action that they took then took care of the problem and that um, mesh used in other instances wasn't going to be as problematic. But, you know, I think that the data is showing that that's not the case, certainly. As we look at this from the consumer's point of view, obviously consumers want this information. I mean, you know, Mesh News Desk has trying to, been trying to do this for a decade or so. You are doing this through your data collection and thank you for doing that. What can a consumer do if they're having an adverse complication from any medical device? So, you know, there are things the FDA needs to do to, right now they're just checking the box that says we're transparent without making the data usable. And to me, that's, that's not true transparency. Certainly reporting the adverse event, the FDA does have a, a way to do that. I would say report it directly to the FDA rather than to the device company, because we don't know um, whether they're reporting um, correctly, whether they're going to take what really happened and, and put that in the report that goes to the FDA, because nobody knows your body like you do. And so you have to trust that what you're going through, you know, is, is what needs to be reported and you have to give them levels. You know, I'm, I'm in chronic pain 90% of the time. You have to give it some metrics, you know, give it some weight that the FDA can look and say, okay, wow, this is, this is more than just, you know, post-procedural pain. The FDA likes to have updates. So if anything, if you've had multiple surgeries and it still didn't improve, you need to tell them that. And if it did improve, that's helpful to them as well. Um, now that, that only informs the FDA of what you're going through. You would, of course, need to talk to your physician, um, I know that some people can get mesh removed. Sometimes it takes multiple surgeries. That would be something the patient would want to talk to their doctor about because every, every situation is different. Um, and so looking into whether that's the cause of, um, of the pain um, and whether there might be an, another way to, to do the same surgery um, without the mesh. 
Yeah, the the focus of device events in a perfect world, what would you like to see it accomplish? Well, so device events was created to help identify the problems and the FDA calls them signals. So when you see a pattern of adverse events that may indicate something's going on with the device, when we look at something like mesh, we, we are getting the reports. I think, you know, certainly everyone who is injured by mesh um, needs to file a report directly with the FDA, but I think there are some additional steps we can take. The FDA has not had a public meeting about hernia mesh. And I think that that's sorely needed. And typically the way that these, these happen is that someone will contact their congressman or congresswoman, and that person will write a letter to the FDA and request a public meeting. And that's how some of these have happened in the past. You know, the one for eShore came through um, Mike, Representative Mike Fitzpatrick's office. So this is how things get done. I'm always happy to provide data that they can put in their letter to say, you know, we've seen a huge number of these uh, adverse events coming in and we think the FDA should do a public meeting. And even though it seems at those public meetings like nothing's happening, what the FDA is doing is they're collecting this information. You know, they're, they're taking it all in. And then typically within two to three months, they act on it. Um, so whether it's a letter to physicians or recommendations about certain types of mesh not being used for certain procedures, or even if they were to make the recommendation to make it a higher risk um, medical device and, and make it go back and go through the um, what the FDA calls that gold standard, which is clinical trials, because mesh made it to the market without ha ever having to do that. It was tested on animals and Hernia mesh has been used since the 50s and 60s. And so what happened was when the FDA formed its device division, they didn't make devices that were already on the market go through any kind of trials. They got grandfathered in. And then once they're already on the market, everyone says, okay, well, my mesh is just like this mesh that's already on the market. And the FDA says, okay. Even though sometimes the mesh that, that has been recalled they can still say my mesh is just like this mesh that, you know, was on the market. And so that's essentially how all of this, how this device is kind of propagated over the years. And, you know, there was a never a point at which the FDA stopped and said, you know, we need to do a study on all of these types and, and not let doctors use it until we've been able to prove that it's safe and effective. You have to have, um, you know, kind of this ego check for these companies that are putting out devices that think that they're going to save the world. And when they see that that's not happening, um, they need to take a step back and, and the FDA needs to hold them to account. And, you know, that hasn't been done. Before we let you go, I'm wondering if there are any other medical devices that you want to mention that you're seeing some spikes in. There is one in specific, well, actually two. So spinal cord stimulators are on the rise because um, of the opioid crisis. So people are being told, you know, we're not going to be able to keep you on the medications you're on. And so maybe you want to get this device instead. And, and we're finding um, actually quite a lot of deaths from the spinal cord stimulators, heart attacks, things like that, because something that's going to stimulate your nervous system is, is going to... Um, affect your brain and your heart and your entire body. And then the other thing is dental implants. There were um, over 2 million reports 
that came in about dental implants and the body rejecting them. And they were listed as serious injuries. So that's not considered a malfunction if, if your dental implant um, is rejected by your body. That's a serious injury. And sometimes you even lose bone at the same time. The FDA had done a wanted to have more dentists reporting to them about dental implants. And they did a, a video tutorial on how to report to the FDA about a year and a half ago. And since then, we've received 300,000 adverse event reports for dental implants. Most people, um, they, they're getting titanium, but they don't realize that it's an alloy. And so many times it's alloyed with cobalt, which was the, um, the metal that caused a lot of trouble with metal on metal hips um, and nickel which, you know, 35% of the population has an allergy or sensitivity to nickel. And that would be something that you would want to know before you get it is, is there nickel in this device? And, you know, if I can't wear earrings, I may not want to have them drill a device into my jaw that, that contains something that I'm allergic to. Again, bottom line, if you have an adverse reaction to a medical device or a family member does, Make sure you contact the FDA MedWatch division and report that. And then I would assume do follow-up to make sure it was reported correctly. Um, And do follow-up if your condition changes, improves, gets worse. Keep in touch with the FDA. Don't rely on your doctor to do it necessarily. They may not do it. Certainly don't rely on the manufacturer to do it because they have no incentive to do that. Madris, you're amazing. Um, Founder of Device Events. And you are just, as I said, a wealth of information. Thank you so much. Happy to help. Thank you for having me. I'm Jane Acree with Mesh News Desk. Thank you for joining us in our discussion with Madris Kynard of Device Events, a database of adverse events of medical devices compiled in a usable form from the public information of the FDA. Please stay well.